Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, let me invite you to open up to Exodus chapter 20. We are uh, in the midst of our series walking through this book, and we find ourselves uh, here amongst God giving His law to His people in the Ten Commandments. Now, I realized that uh, less than two years ago, I preached a series walking through the Ten Commandments, and so I do not intend to rehash old sermons for you today. Although I was quite tempted after this week. And so what I hope to do today is to sort of scan out and to not necessarily look at the tree, but actually to look at the forest and to see what in totality all of the Ten Commandments really speak to and how they challenge us as God gives his law to his people and as we wrestle with that law even today. One of the things that was striking this week in preparation for today is the idea that for every law and command that God gives, that it points back to his character. And the laws that were given point back to the one who actually gave the laws. You see, we can look out even within our country and our state and even our city and towns, and, and we see that the laws often reflect the character of those who write the laws, of those who enforce the laws even. Not to be amiss from this opportunity, as I began to think about laws, I began to think about and remember some of the most ridiculous laws that exist within our country. People in Mobile, Alabama in particular, they have a city ordinance and a fine that it is illegal to spray silly string or confetti to bust what they would call stink balls that create disagreeable odors and it can be fined by up to $500 or imprisonment for one year if you let these things off. In Little Rock, Arkansas, you have to be careful when you go out for a late night snack for it is illegal to honk your horn outside of a sandwich shop or anywhere where cold drinks are sold after 9 p.m. Doing so could issue you a fine of up to $1,000 and $2,000 for each additional offense. In the great state of Delaware, pawn shop owners are prohibited from accepting artificial limbs <laughs> or wheelchairs. As payment for some bartering, doing so can cost you up to $10,000 in the great state of Georgia. There is a prohibition against eating fried chicken with a fork. <laughs> now, I don't know how one eats fried chicken with a fork anyway, but it is against the law and a violation of a city ordinance. In the great state of West Virginia, political hopefuls should take note for it is illegal to run for office if you have ever accepted or been challenged to a duel. Now, as a pastor, I've been challenged to several duels myself, and this would disqualify me from running for office in West Virginia and states like Wisconsin where they take their dairy very seriously, state law says that certified premium grade AA cheese must be highly pleasing. Meanwhile, the lower grade B cheese, whatever that is, needs only to be fairly pleasing. 
Now, I don't know if you eat your fried chicken with a fork or whether you would categorize cheese as being highly pleasing or fairly pleasing, but what is it that these laws say about the ones who issue the laws? What is it that it says about the character and the nature of those who would even enforce things like this? Now, we read laws like this and we read statements like this, and it is one thing to assign some sort of character or blame towards politicians and, and those that would issue these laws. It is quite another, friend, for us to see what God has given in his word and the laws that he has given and to rightly identify each of these laws with his character with who he is and whom he has revealed himself to be according to his word. And so I want to draw your attention, beginning in Exodus 20, beginning in verse 1, where God's word says this, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. We know from last week that the Hebrews have gathered at the foot of Mount Sinai and God has descended in thunder and lightning and with smoke and with fire and he is prepared to deliver his law, to deliver his word to the people of God. And so they gather there trembling and, and quaking before him. And so God begins to speak in Exodus 20. And I want you to notice just from the very beginning in verse 2 where he says, I am the Lord your God. In this moment in the Hebrew, he uses his covenant name, Yahweh, indicating and reminding his people that he is alone the great I am. He is sovereign over them, and he is the almighty Lord. He is supreme and self-existent. He is eternal, and he is unchangeable. He is their God. Notice he uses that pronoun where he says, I am the Lord your God, indicating his relationship that he has with the Hebrew people, this personal relationship that exists, that each and every one of the Hebrews are his. It's a saving relationship. He reminds them that he has brought them out of the land of slavery and into a land of great freedom. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of this land, out of the house of slavery. One of the things that we see from God delivering his law to his people is it communicates something about his very nature and about his very essence. And oftentimes we think of God on these remote terms that, that at one point in time he, he was a God of justice and a God of wrath and, and now we, we see him as a God of love. But, but what we know from that is that we are mistaken when we study God's word in its totality because God never ceases to be what he always has been. He doesn't stop being something that he was prior to that. And oftentimes we can think about his attributes for and his character and who he is as if he moves in and out of, of his nature somehow, that, that he adopts certain things. But, but what we know according to scripture is God is all things all at once. He is perfectly unified in all that he does. I want to show you uh, this chart that's behind me that exists that I think communicates more accurately who God actually is. If this circle communicates the triune God. 
And each and every one of those lines that exists within that circle, it represents an attribute of God. His holiness and, and his righteousness, his self-sufficiency, his authority, his goodness and his kindness. And each of these attributes, it, it intertwines with one another. He is always the same. He is eternal and, and he is unchanging. And each of these attributes, it crisscrosses one another and, and it speaks to who he is. You see, for God, is not a collection of various attributes that we add together to come up with the notion of God. These attributes are not added to his being. He is every attribute all at once. He is perfect in unity with himself. He doesn't cease to be one thing while being another. He is not loving at one point in history and wrathful in another. He is not a God of justice in the Old Testament while being a God of love in the New Testament. God is and always has been infinitely just and infinitely loving at the same time. Now, there are times in Scripture where we see the actions of God display more emphatically certain attributes to the neglect of the others. Sometimes it's stronger than others, but it doesn't mean that God ceases to be who he is. He is all of these things all at once in perfect unity and in perfect harmony with, one, with himself. No one single attribute of God is more important than any of the others. He is a God of justice, just as much as he is a God of love. But then God continues to speak and he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. And he tells the Hebrews, as he begins to list his 10 commandments or what we know as the 10 commandments. And he says in verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. This speaks to the character of God and the jealousy that exists within him. That he is a jealous God. For Isaiah tells us elsewhere that, that God will not give his glory to anyone else. And he is jealous for his name's sake. Because all other gods and all other idols that the Israelites bowed down and they worshiped, all the idolatry that exists within our own hearts, within our own city and, and state and country, all other gods are imposters before him. This commandment, it announces the unique sovereignty of God. It indicates that, that he is omnipresent, that he is everywhere and all powerful because it tells us not to have any other gods before him in his presence. And so you shall have no other gods before me. Verse four, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, I am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and to the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. What God is saying in this moment that reflects his character is that this commandment in this moment in verse 4 is about worshiping God in the right and proper way. You see, God refuses to be worshipped by means of any images. It shows and demonstrates that, that he is spirit and that he does not have a physical form except though who comes incarnate through Christ Jesus. 
And one problem that we often have with idols is that we confuse the creator with its creation. The verse speaks also in verses 5 and 6 to his justice. That God visits the iniquity of the fathers and, and the children to the third and to the fourth generation of those who hate me. The God who gave the law is also a God who makes absolute moral distinctions before his people. And he tells us in his word what is right and what is wrong. He, he delineates for us and, and he lays it before us and he says, this is what is right according to my word and my truth and, and my propositions. This is what is right and this is what is wrong. And I will punish those who go against me. I will visit, I will visit the iniquity of the fathers for generation and generation. Verse 7 goes on and he says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. In other words, those who break his law are charged with guilt. And this command in particular in verse 7, it shows that there is honor at stake, that, that God is honorable in all that he does and that he therefore deserves to be treated with respect because even his name is holy. Even his name is righteous. Even his name is worthy to be praised. God goes on in verse 8 and he says, remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And on it you shall not do any work or your son or your daughter or your male servant or female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them. And he rested on the seventh. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and he made it holy. What God is doing in this moment through this commandment is showing that he is still sovereign over all the events of daily life. He is Lord over every day of the week and it makes this connection between what is commanded and the one who, is, who commands, between God and his law. We as a people, listen to me, we are commanded to work and we are commanded to rest because we serve a working and a resting God. And so we labor, and that labor is toilsome and it's difficult at times, but, but then, oh friend, what, what we miss is that we are quite good at working and, and toiling, but what many of us need to hear today is that many of us need to cease and need to rest from our work. And we need to honor what the Lord has said to remember the Sabbath and to keep it holy. Now, the first four commandments that God gives, they govern really essentially our relationship to him. And, and the next six, what they do is they teach us how to work with one another and alongside of each other in a horizontal fashion. So if the first four speak to how we are to relate to God properly, the next six, they teach us how we are to be a people amongst one another and how we are to serve and, and to look at one another. For he says in verse 12, he says to honor your father and your mother so that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving. What stands behind this commandment in this moment is, is really and essentially God's own authority as he has declared himself to be our father who art in heaven. 
And this is the first point in which God gives his law that attached to that command and that law is this promise. The promise of a long life in a good land, which speaks to the character and the generosity of our God to provide for his people. He goes on in verse 13 and he says, you shall not murder. Lest we need to be reminded of this, this reminds us that he is the Lord and and he is, can issue this command to not murder. Why? Because he is the giver of all life. He is the one who gives and he is the one who takes. He forbids the taking of innocent life because, precisely because he is the life giver. It preserves and it speaks to his sovereignty over the totality of life from the cradle all the way to the tomb. He is Lord over death as well as Lord over life. Verse 14, he says, you shall not commit adultery. This speaks to his purity. This speaks to his faithfulness, that he is never a God that has gone astray or been led astray, that he is a righteous and a holy God who is pure and who is faithful. And he is a God, listen to me, who expects that all covenants be kept, that we honor the words that we use and how we say things, that we would be faithful and not commit adultery, that we would speak to his purity and speak to his faithfulness. Verse 15 says, you shall not steal. This speaks to the idea that he is our provider. That we don't need to take things that don't belong to us. That we don't need to pursue ill-gotten gain. Why? Because he is our God and he has given us everything that we need. Everything to equip us and to encourage us. We shall not steal. He is our provider. Everything in this life, it ultimately belongs to him. And therefore, we do not have the right to take what was given to someone else. And so you shall not steal. Verse 16, he says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. It speaks to the fact that our God is a God of truth. He's a God of integrity and and honesty. He always does what's right and he always says what's right. He is true in all he is and says and does. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And can I add to that, just a caveat, you shall not misrepresent your neighbor in some way. You understand your neighbor and, and the point that they make, but you don't misrepresent, you don't leave out facts, you don't leave out and tell half truths in the process to bear false witness against them. That it may not be an outright slander and a lie towards someone, but it may be the the selective uh, information that is given and gathered and, and passed on to someone that you bear false witness against them. Verse 17 says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor. This idea of covetousness comes from a desire to possess what God has not given us. And can I say that in a day and age of social media and Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, that it has only made us worse people because of it. 
That we look online and we see the, the perceived well-being of someone that, that captures a picture that's edited in some way or a vacation or a trip or a possession. And we see those things and that somewhere deep within our hearts, we desire to have those things that they do. Whether it be the portrayal of a, of a perfect family or, or perfect kids, we, those things begin to resonate within our hearts. And then we begin to think that somehow deep within our own lives that, that God has shortchanged us. Or if only it could be a certain way. And so we begin to covet and we begin to desire things that, that aren't actually true to begin with. God commands us not to covet because he can be trusted to give us everything that we truly need. It speaks to the fact that he is our provider. He is our provision. And that ultimately we have everything that we need in Christ and that God has equipped us for every good work and that every possession and, and everything that we own and occupy ultimately is his and it has been given to us by him to steward for his purposes. And so therefore you shall not covet your neighbor's house. Verse 18, as God gives the law, then the writer of Exodus begins to describe what happens in verse 18. It says, now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountains smoking, the people were afraid and they trembled. They stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. And so Moses says to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you. That the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. And so the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. As God gives his law to his people, this law reflects who he is. And it speaks to his character. It speaks to his attributes, all of these things intertwined at once, that he is our provision, that he is our provider, that he is a pure and, and, and faithful God, that he is never changing, and he is eternal in all his ways. But one thing that is not explicitly stated in these Ten Commandments that I think is rather implicitly implied about the character of God in the midst of that is the attribute of love. For you see, when we get to the New Testament and Jesus begins to summarize the law, he begins to summarize Exodus 20. Jesus says in Matthew 22, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and this is the greatest commandment. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. How simplistic is this idea? That Jesus comes along in the scene as, as God in the flesh and incarnate and he summarizes all of the law with really just two commands. Love God and love your neighbor. Amen. You see, we love God by worshiping him and using his name properly. We obey him as, as and we love him as we walk in obedience. And the truth is we cannot separate God's love from God's law. The two are, are interchangeable. God's law was never intended to be separated from God's love. 
And in fact, he gives the law in a, in a very loving way. These commandments, they display the, the character of, of who God is. They reveal his sovereignty and his jealousy. They shout his justice. They display his holiness and his faithfulness. They demonstrate his providence for his people to lead them out of the land of, of slavery and to lead them into the land of promise and, and righteousness. They reflect his truthfulness, and most importantly, they reflect his love for his people. You see, in this law, in these Ten Commandments and the others that were given, they express God's will for our lives because they are based upon his character. The law and, and all of its goodness springs from the goodness of who he is. And it guides us and, and it leads us. Because you see, friend, here today, when we break God's law, that it is essentially an assault, not on his law, but it is an assault upon his character. When we defy his, his word and we go about things in our own way, we, we begin worshiping other gods. We begin to, to bow down before other idols that exist within, within our hearts. We misuse his name. We, we deny his honor. When we steal, it's to deny his providence. When we lie, it is to deny his truthfulness. But the question you may be asking today that I've wrestled with this week, is God's law still in effect for his people today? For the writer of Paul says in Romans 6.14, you are not under the law, but rather you are under grace. He says elsewhere in Galatians 3, now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. And I think one thing that's helpful for us to understand in the midst of this and, and why the Ten Commandments today would, would still be relevant for God's people is that for the Hebrews, they would have understood the totality of all of God's law. They would have divided them up into really three categories that theologians have classified, the moral and the civil and the ceremonial. You see, throughout the Old Testament, there are somewhere around 600 plus laws that the Hebrews had to follow. And each of these laws can be divided up into these three ways. They, they had the ceremonial this was the way in which they were to go about interacting with the priest and coming before him. And, and there were all these descriptions of things to do and to not do and how to purify yourselves and, and what not to do as you come into the presence of the Lord. And the list of those was immense. But these things have been taken away because we, they were meant ultimately to point to the person of the name of Jesus. There were civil laws that existed. In other words, when, when one party was offended by another, you didn't go to a judge. You, you rather, you came before God's people and his word and, and you humbled yourself before them. And so God would settle in some ways the disputes that would exist between neighbor. And he would say, do this and, and don't do this. Go about it in this way to, to rectify a wrong. And he would give these prescriptions that, that would exist there. This, these were the civil laws that existed much in the same way that we would see our courts and our politicians and our Supreme Court, if you will, would settle disputes. But there was also what they called the moral law. In other words, the Ten Commandments. And why these still apply today is that these moral laws, uh, they, they speak to the morality and the righteous living in which God's people are to live today. It is the righteous and eternal standard for our relationship with God. And we can say definitively that they still apply for us because throughout the New Testament, we see each and every one of these laws applied. 
rather by Jesus' own words or by the Apostle Paul or a disciple. They affirm in in every which way. And and here's the deal. He actually raises the standard in the New Testament. Because the standard was not the law to follow in 600 plus. But now, by God's grace, his people, we are held to the standard not of the law, but rather to the standard of Christ. If you don't believe me, let me just walk you through. He says in Exodus 20, no other gods. Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. He tells us in Exodus 20 that all idolatry is forbidden. 1 John 5, 21 says, dear children, keep yourselves from idols. He says in Exodus 20 to honor God's name. Jesus says in Matthew 6, 9, hallowed be your name. He says to to work and and then to rest. Paul tells us in Colossians 3, whatever you do, do it with all of your heart. Jesus goes on in Matthew 12, 8, and he says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. He says to honor your parents. Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, children, obey your parents. For this is right, honor your father and your mother. By the way, happy Father's Day to you. He says, do not murder. Jesus says in Matthew 5, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. That the anger that exists within your heart is is equivalent to to the murder that he speaks about in Exodus 20. He says, do not lust. He says, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart, Matthew 5, 28. He says, do not steal. And Paul says in Ephesians 4, he who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work. He says, do not lie. Paul says in Colossians 3, 9, do not lie to each other. He says, do not covet. James says, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasure. Do not covet. You see, each and every one of these commandments, the moral law of God, have been given to his people to govern how it is that we live. And they are certainly still relevant today, not because God gave it all the way back in Exodus 20, but rather because Christ and the apostle Paul and throughout the scriptures, it affirms every single one of these commands in the New Testament. And so therefore they are binding upon the follower of Christ. That in grace and because of grace, We follow and and we mess up and and we make mistakes. And and listen to me, friend, the whole point of the 600 plus laws given in the Old Testament were to make one singular point for us today. And it's namely this, is that God knew when he gave every single one of those commands and every single one of those laws, he knew that you and I, he knew the Hebrews, he knew all of those who have gone before us today were completely incapable and inept in actually following those laws. Think about that for a moment. He gives the laws knowing that his children cannot keep the laws. Why? Namely because he says to you and I today and his people, I know you can't keep them, but I can. And through my son, Jesus, who perfectly fulfilled the law 
and followed every letter of the law to the T. He dotted every I and crossed every T, namely to point to the fact that you needed someone to redeem you from your sins. And so he sends his son, Jesus, reminding us that of our inability to fulfill what it is that God has required of his people so that we would call upon his name one day and that we'd be saved and that he would be the perfect law fulfiller on our behalf. That he would stand in my place and your place to die a death that we couldn't die, to, to atone for our sins in a way in which we could not atone, but he could. The lawgiver who perfectly fulfills his law on your behalf and on mine. That one day through his spirit, we would call upon his name and we would believe that he was who he says he was and that his death was sufficient in my place as he stood on Calvary on that cross to die a death that I could not die. And that his righteousness would then be mine. Friend, today, have you called upon his name to save you? Have you called upon his name to redeem you? Maybe you're here today and, and you do know him. Maybe you've been walking with him faithfully. But maybe your sense of, of righteousness here today, church, is, is one in which you pride yourself, if you will, on your ability in keeping these laws. Can I say before you today, as one who was boasted in, in trying to be right and to be good, to humble yourselves before him, to allow him to replace that, that pride with humility in your life. And would you let his spirit work in your heart and in your midst today? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your good word. We thank you for your kindness and graciousness. We thank you for your law as it speaks to your character and your nature and who you are and who you have declared yourself to be. And so, Father, I ask that in this time of, of response, as we meet with you, as we respond to your word, I, I pray, Father, that we would not measure ourselves against so many lists of, of do's and, and do nots, but rather we would measure ourselves and find our identity solely in your son, Jesus. So, Father, would you help us walk in that manner, in a manner that's worthy of your gospel. For we pray these things in Christ's name and God's people say, amen.